people were having pickets. Like they, they literally had like the picket signs and they were on strike because they were so afraid that a, a boy might want to play with dolls and a girl might want to play with connects. But to me, we rob people of following their purpose and understanding their calling and their career when we actually segment them into little boxes. That was from my conversation with the CEO of Indivity, Dr. Colleen Batchelder. For over 20 years, Dr. Batchelder has presented talks on generational differences, racial justice, LGBTQIA plus inclusion, and the necessity for intergenerational education within corporate, nonprofit, and government sectors. Dr. Batchelder leverages her doctorate in leadership and global perspectives, her experience as a millennial studying around the world, and her own passion and determination to be a voice for the marginalized to help companies create spaces of diversity, inclusion, and equity. I'm excited to share our conversation. Thank you again, as always, to Misha Zarens for the music in today's show. Welcome to the Walk Show podcast, Dr. Colleen Batchelder. How are you doing this evening? Good. Great. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, for sure. Really excited to have you. So, Colleen, you are the CEO, and now... This might be a word that I'm supposed to say, but I'm going to read it as an acronym. <laughs> it's I-N-D-I-V-I-T-I. Is, you got is that it. a word that you say? So it, it's a little bit of a, of a fun word to say, but it's, it's a new word that I created. It's called Indivity. And what I did is I took the word inclusive and diversity and just kind of joined it together. So you have Indivity. Nice. Yeah, thanks. That makes I, I kind of thought it was something like that, but I knew I would just stumble. So I figured I would just <laughs> go at it this way. But in Divity, yes, that's easy to say. And it makes a lot of sense. So you are a diversity and inclusion consultant and leadership strategist. Can you talk a bit about, I guess, what is in Divity? I mean, obviously, it involves diversity and inclusion, but what are you doing with that? Yeah, sure. So I, I would love to really talk about one of my favorite quotes. And this really was one of the, the kind of jumping off points of why I, I started this organization was it was by Verna Myers and it's diversity is being invited to the party. Inclusion is being asked to dance. And so what my consulting firm does is we work with different organizations, companies, and individuals because we want to gravitate them toward tokenism and the idea of the assumption of diversity to actual diversity. So how do we engage multiple different voices and races in the boardroom to not only kind of work within the mission, but help shape the mission? And I think even like what you're looking at right now, the idea of, you know, especially with millennials in the workforce, like there's 75% of the people right in the companies and they're crying out. They don't want the raises. They want flexibility. So even just the idea of cognitive dissonance and cognitive diversity is what I really work with companies about. And so I help them understand diversity, inclusion, and equity. But the twist is I help them understand it from a millennial and Generation Z standpoint. Because it's so different when you get all different generations in the room. Yeah, that's really interesting. And it's really an interesting way to frame the the phrase of diversity and inclusion. And, and I don't mean this as a, a negative at all. Oh. I think it's it's largely, at least colloquially, associated with either like issues of race or sexual preference or sexual identity and that sort of stuff. And again, I don't all of that does need to be <laughs> defended and protected. And so I don't mean that it shouldn't be about those things. But you're saying that it, it, it's it's beyond just those kind of popular categories, for lack of a better way to say that. 
definitely. I mean, even the idea of, you know, when you're working with a millennial, per se, it's much more about team orientation. And so right now, because of, of the pandemic, they're dying to get together with teams. But yet, if you look at actually Generation Z and Generation X, kind of like the sandwich group, they're very much more individualistic. And so they're fine with this idea of flexibility where millennials are still trying to figure out, okay, how do I actually stay connected to the, to the company, but not have that face-to-face interaction or if they're going hybrid. So there's such a diversity when it comes to how people interact, even the idea of feedback. When a millennial steps into a company, they're not just looking for that one-year review or that six-month checkup. You know, we have that desire to have that constant feedback, not because we're snowflakes, but because of the fact that we want to do everything at 110%. And so that actually, we're very loyal to companies, but we do require a lot from them. So when they understand that diversity and how, how we sort of think differently, it just enables a better conversation and a more robust company. Yeah. So, I mean, you've kind of highlighted this, but what would yeah. you say are the most kind of obvious or direct benefits of diversity and inclusion? I think the problem is, you know, when you're looking at diversity and inclusion, you know, before, so I'm, I'm 34. When I was stepping first into the workforce, it was fine to just sit down and have a conversation. And so we would work as a team, we'd figure out, okay, what needs to change? It was more about sort of creating the belief systems, but not necessarily the behavioral transformations. Now, Generation Z is one of the most diversified, diversified groupings. Even when it comes to sexual orientation, I think over 40% of them identify as bisexual. So when they look at a company, they're not looking to really engage in dialogue. They want to actually see that behavior transformed because of what millennials actually did. And so I would say the biggest thing is I, when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, and one of the biggest things that I would say, especially to companies and and business leaders, is the time is yesterday, it's not tomorrow. Because if they're not working towards a more diversified and equitable workplace, and that includes not just leading with having a few races on 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 the pamphlet or kind of diversifying your website, but truly having you know, from the janitor all the way to the CEO, influence the company's mission so that it doesn't just stay stagnant. Because if they don't work together as a team, especially when it comes to different ages, backgrounds, and even socioeconomic statuses, then the company will just halt at this moment and will have no no future and no ability to actually sustain sustain time. You know what? I don't know if this makes sense or not, but a parallel that that jumps into my mind is, is, you know, and now someone who knows a lot about history will probably tell me I'm completely insane and wrong, but like, and I'm, again, I'm just picking a time frame at random, but let's say you were born in 1700 and then someone else was born in 1800. Like from a technological standpoint, I don't know that the world is way different in that hundred years. I mean, there's probably some innovations, but largely it's generally the same. Whereas if you look at someone born in 1921 and they live to be in 2021, I mean, it's unrecognizable almost. Right. And, and so that's again, in the space of technology, is that also true culturally? Like, did we used to evolve? Did did culture evolve slower and along with maybe not because of technology, but is it, is it also shifting faster? Does that make sense? Because the idea of, you know, when, when you think about technology, even, you know, 10, 20 years ago, to me, it's like when you had a question, you might have approached 
a family member, you know, a friend, you know, someone within your immediate influence. Nowadays, when we have a question, what's the first thing that we do? We go to Google. So it's this idea of we've gone from a very localized identity to globalized, and we've shifted so quickly. Even the idea of, you know, what does it mean to be an adult? You know, 10, 20 years ago, it was all about independence. You know, you pack your bags, college bound. We didn't know of the different choices. But mm-hmm. now, because we have the influence of globalization, a lot more millennials and a lot more Generation Z are, are really embracing intergenerational households. And they're trying to figure out, okay, wait a minute, this is acceptable. And this actually works better. So a lot of the times technology has opened our eyes to understand that the word adulthood or the word work or balance is really three-dimensional and it's personalized to, to our mental health and also how we ourselves function best. So mm. it's not like we're not on that rat race anymore. We're not really like on just that conveyor belt to sort of look like everybody else mm-hmm. because of globalization, because of technology, we have so many choices to work. And to live our lives, but to live it to the best, to the best of our ability, but to also live it in, in our, in our own mental health and to keep ourselves sane while we do it. Right. Well, I mean, and this kind of piggybacks off of technology and it might be a very, it might be way too loaded of a question to be a good question, but I think that, you know, the internet and social media certainly has fueled the awareness of these cultural changes in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, like I have grew up and live still in Springfield, Missouri, which is any town USA, right? To your, if it was the eighties or the nineties, yeah, there's television and magazines and that sort of stuff. But day to day, I'm largely just going to be seeing local people. And now I could spend all of my time online and see everyone from all over the world. Right. So my, my question, I guess, is I think that, that social media and again, the internet, even prior to social media, but, but social media certainly I think has an impact where it's this positive change because it exposes people to these differences. At the same time, social media has become, you know, not in every instance, but in many instances, this war place <laughs> for people to attack each other. So I, I, I guess my question is, do you think that, that social media is a net positive for this conversation about diversity and inclusion or a net negative because of these, this tribalism, this polarization that we yeah. see? I think it can definitely be both, but I understand what you're talking about because, you know, when you look at, we're, we're all approaching the world and we're all approaching different issues. And even what we see on the news from our own personal bias, we can't escape it because it has to do with where we were raised, you know, our family, our culture, our religion. Like there are so many different things that are intrinsic to us and how we view the world and how we view what's going on in the world. I think the problem sometimes with social media is instead of becoming an educational experience and opportunity, it's become very consumed with cancel culture. Mm-hmm. And so instead, social media needs to actually be a progressive community. It needs to actually have that engagement, have that conversation. And yes, there needs to be some boundaries here and there because, you know, none of us really want to be disrespectful to one another, but difference is not disrespect. It's just coming out with your own perspectives and saying, look, I'm in a place of teachability, but this is the bias that I'm coming with. Help me to understand. So social media as a whole, I think, has the possibility towards that. I would say that a lot of the time social media does not really kind of raise to the standard on what it should be. And there is a lot of cancellation going on because people in one click can block us. They can unfriend us. 
we we dehumanize people easily instead mm-hmm. of actually engaging and figuring out how we can be better examples of humanity. Yeah, no, I think that's really fair. I mean, so I'm someone who I've always been uh, a pretty liberal person, being especially being from the Midwest. However, and so, you know, a few years ago, I remember, for example, there was this, there was a show called Duck Dynasty. Yes. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. And one of the patriarchs or whatever of that family came out and said something derogatory about gay marriage. And then the show got canceled, I believe, from the TV network and, and whatever. And there was this outcry. And at that time, I was in my early to mid-20s at that time. But at that time, I was like, yeah, F that guy. He, mm. You know, there's no room for that. Because I, I I disagree and I feel like that view is based in hurting people. Whereas I feel yeah. like the view of being okay with someone with a different sexual preference than me getting married is not hurtful to anyone, right? Mm-hmm. Does, it, does that make sense? Like this inclusiveness yeah. is not hurtful. Yeah. And the, I got some pushback from some people that were like, you can't shut people out though. And I was like, yeah, but we, I mean, we don't have, there's no room for this. Then as the last eight years have gone on, I have definitely seen that if you do shut people out that have views that you don't agree with, they don't stop having those views. They just retreat to echo chambers where they just talk to other people with that are willing to hear those views. And then it just gets reinforced. I think that happens across the political spectrum, to be clear. So I don't mean to, to point fingers at any one group or anything. So I, I guess it's a very long-winded way to get to the question of how, how do we be inclusive with someone that has a view that we find unacceptable. That's not just like, oh, I prefer green and you prefer yellow, but I think these people should be able to have this set of rights. And another person disagrees with that. How yeah. do we bridge that well, gap? No, I, I think it's, and it's a great question. I think for me and what, what I kind of segmented down to is there's different perspectives. I mean, I, th- I think as you were saying, where it sounds like this is not a disagreement of red versus green. It's not, you know, do you have white lights for Christmas? Do you have multicolored? <laughs> you know, do you celebrate Hanukkah? Do you celebrate Kwanzaa? It's not a difference. It's discrimination. And so I think when you're talking about same-sex marriage, when you're talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter, these are things that are, that should be intrinsic within us that rise up to the point of, of defending those that are marginalized. Because I, I, w- I remember even talking to one of my friends and he says, there's no such thing as racism when it's against white people. And he said, there isn't because black people are the minority. People of color are the minority. Indigenous are the minority. So when you have that idea of when you're talking about any people group that is, is being prejudiced is, or is, you know, experiencing bias, experiencing discrimination, I think as humans, regardless of our political affiliation, we should always stand to have that equality. Now, one thing that I have found, and I, I kind of come from a, I, I've got conservatives on one side, I've got liberals on the middle, and I'm kind of not talked to by either. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's a very interesting mix. But I think if, if someone comes to me and says, look, this is where I'm coming from. This is how I grew up. But there's something within me that just doesn't feel right with the bias that I, that's been passed down to me culturally, familiarly, I have hope for that person because they're at least in the stance of teachability. Mm-hmm. 
The problem comes when a person says, well, this is what I believe and therefore I believe and it's because it's true. That's when I draw the line. And so for me, I think even kind of like the, the connection with social media, I have wonderful conversations on social media, but if I see people that are using that thread to dehumanize, to discriminate, to use that thread to support their own bias, that's when they get the delete button. And so mm. I think, I think it's a really, it's an interesting conundrum. I think it's, it's very kind of a gray area, but I would say if, if you're coming from the place of teachability, then engage, I think. But I would definitely say to people, when when people are coming with discrimination, the worst thing that you can do is present your opinion. Because the problem is they're coming with their own opinion. And a lot of the times these opinions are not coming from an educational perspective. It's coming from a loyal perspective to their upbringing. And so they feel disloyal if they diverge. And so one of the best things that I would encourage your audience is the idea of have things in your arsenal that you can hand them that are connected to their backgrounds. And so let's say someone's coming from a conservative place, have some conservative authors on hand that they trust, but that speak a perspective that's much more inclusive and about diversity, Mm. but it's someone that they're willing to listen to and then bring them on the road to other voices that talk about that same topic. Yeah. Yeah. It's something that I, I I think about a lot because I, I just have been so shocked by the, again, the, the the tribalism that's set in, in the last several years here in the United States, at least. And um, I don't know, I don't know what the answer is, but I, I do think, and I've I've been exposed to it through, through this very show because I've had people on and not even politically, like I've had, like, I don't believe in ghosts, right? I had a lady on who's a ghost hunter. And she also has a PhD and approaches ghost hunting in this really scientific way. And it was fascinating. Now, I still don't believe in ghosts, right? Mm-hmm. But I can certainly respect what she's mm-hmm. doing and respect her and think that she's a credible person. And there's no, even though I'm not bought in in that way, I have no problem with her at all, right? But I think that it's it, it's because I had the opportunity to sit and talk with her for nearly an hour or whatever. Mm-hmm. So when it when it comes to diversity and inclusion, do you think that is it the nuance that really matters or, or, or do general principles apply more to help people grasp these concepts? No, I, I think it's a mix of both. I would okay. say the, the general comes into the idea of regardless of our background, regardless of how we're approaching the topic, we can understand it for universal ethics. And so how do we actually treat people with kindness? How do we, you know, offer compassion? How do we, you know, treat people not like they're the other? Those are things that are universal. They're ethical. Individual is when people get to their idea of morality. And so a lot of the times it's colored by, you know, culture, by religion, by, you know, having non-religion. You know, it, it still stems from that individualistic, you know, idea about, about subjects biggest thing that I think we need to move away from, whether it's liberal or whether it's conservative, is approaching agendas. Because I think when we look at diversity and inclusion from an agenda standpoint, from something that we would vote on the ballot box, and we start seeing the faces, it enables us to actually put skin, put bones, put blood on something, and then they become someone, they don't become something. And so then you look at your family, you might look at your daughter or your son and look at them and think about, okay, I might come from a conservative belief system, but what if my son came out to me and said that he was gay? 
How would I love my son? So that, I think the love and the understanding that this is another human that I'm talking to, I think that's really what changes people because you're looking at education, but you're also looking at experience and putting those two together. Mm. So a word that you use there that kind of caught my attention, or at least made me think of a question is, is the, 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 the idea of someone feeling like the other. So I kind of have a, a couple of, of questions here. The first would be though, if an individual is, whether it be at a workplace or another social event of some type, and they see someone who might be feeling like an, an other, might be feeling not included, right? Do you have any simple steps that a person can take to try and help bridge that gap and make that person feel more included? Yeah, I I would say it's it's twofold. I'm so one of the biggest things that I see when it comes to diversity and inclusion, you know, especially let's let's put skin on let's put skin on this person. So let's say the other is a black woman who's experiencing discrimination. Now, one of the worst things, and I think this happens a lot within white culture, is this idea of virtue signaling, this idea of we want justice, we want to stand up. But the problem that comes with that is we don't stand in partnership. We stand as a white witness. Mm. And we speak for that person instead of actually enabling and supporting their voice. So I would say the biggest way that we can support people, especially when it comes to those that we see that are marginalized or experiencing discrimination, especially those that are BIPOC, are looking for ways that their voice can be expressed, not our voice speaking up for them. So going to them, if they're if they are experiencing that bias, standing with them, saying to them verbally that we support you in this, that we are with you. What can I do? How can I enable justice in the situation that you would want? And I think when we take our cue from the person being discriminated against, it doesn't diminish them. It creates that equity and that equality. And so I would say that's the biggest thing is, is going to them and asking, how can I, how can I support you? What are specific ways that I can actually, you know, use my presence to create an equitable situation? And I, I think that's one of the most, the best things that we could do. There's, there's a, a television show called All Rise. And there was a, a judge and she was an African-American woman. And so she's standing in front of, of this African-American young girl. And the police officer comes to her and says, you know, what are you doing out here? And they automatically thought that this young girl was carrying, was carrying a gun, that she was a threat. What happened was this white man came up and started speaking her. It was the worst problem because yes, you had that discrimination going on where the police officer mistakenly used his bias and accused this black young girl of, of a crime. But you also had the discrimination of this white man that was just a bystander speaking for a black person. Mm. And so speaking for someone is the same discrimination as speaking against someone. So what we need to do is we need to actually speak with them and create, create, stand on that platform together so that we truly are equitable and that we truly are partners moving forward. So as, as maybe a good general rule when approaching a situation like that or, or feeling out a circumstance like that to, to ask questions instead of make statements? Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I had a situation where one of my friends 
we were in, we were in a very discriminated restaurant, had no idea and hadn't experienced it being a white woman. And we were told to move away from the window because they didn't want an African-American woman sitting by the window. Wow. And, and, to, and just because I'm a diversity and inclusion consultant does not mean that I was perfect in that situation. And I learned from it because I stood up in white witness. Mm. Justice. Mm-hmm. And I learned from that experience afterwards. And, and my friend and I were able to talk about it and we're able to move forward from there. But at that point, as I said, it was that idea of how can I support? How can I actually create this better and taking my cue from her? And if I would have gone back, I would have done it way differently. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I did complain to the restaurant. I did complain on what happened. But I should have looked for ways to to, to stand as one with my friend mm-hmm. instead of standing up for her and overriding her voice. Right. Right. Yeah. It's uh, it's definitely a complicated complicated. Mm-hmm circumstance to navigate i think you know there's the the old adage that the road road to hell is paid with good paved with good intentions and there are scenarios where that's applicable but at the same time i mean case in point if someone's white witnessing as you've put it their intention might be good but it's a worst outcome right but i still think that that matters that the good intention matters somewhat right yeah definitely yes yeah moving moving away from I, um, you know, to me, I, I belong to religious organizations that were not inclusive, that were not diversified. And to me, I even had to look at that and say, what, what is my affiliation? You know, what is my connection? And what am I advocating for with my silence, with my connection? Mm. And so I think even that is a way that we can stand for justice by not only what we, what we move towards, but also what we move away from. If someone is feeling like the other in a circumstance, is there, are there any things, any practices they can employ to try and not feel that way? I mean, obviously, I don't mean to put the burden on the person who's not feeling included or whatever, but at the same time, are there any tools that they can employ to, to maybe correct that circumstance? Yeah, I, I would definitely think so. You know, to me, for instance, okay, let's, let's take, put skin, put, put a face. Let's say you have, let's say you have a, a gay man, okay, or, or a gay young college student. So, but their, their, their family is not supportive. Well, instead of they know that they're going to face that support, have friends around them that are affirming, or I think look for places where they're not going to experience that abuse. And sometimes that means leaving those that birthed you in order to kind of create your own family. 
Mm. And so I would say also too, kind of coming from a place, you know, even, even as a woman, like, I mean, I have had to, there, there are times that I've broken glass ceilings and experienced the shards of glass. And there are other times that I've deemed myself more worth respect than to put up with the BS that certain mm. people are skewing. And so it's that balance of there are times that I fight and there are times that I don't even think it's worthy to give them the time of day. Mm. And so regardless of what position you are as a marginalized person, I think it has to have those two things. There are times when you fight and there are times that you protect your mental health and you have that respect that you don't give people who are discriminatory or biased or dealing with their own BS the time of day. You yeah. just don't give them that presence. And so I, I, I think it comes to the point of boundaries. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's a really, I think that's a really uh, wise, wise suggestion. I think boundaries are something that people at large struggle to, <laughs> to define and, and set. And anyone I know that has, and I don't just mean in the context of bias or, or anything like that, but really anywhere in life that can set boundaries is always better for it. So yeah, that's, that's good. So you work with, with, with companies primarily, not individuals. Is that true? I, I work with companies on a consulting form and then with okay. individuals, I do executive coaching. Okay. And so the companies you're working with, are they primarily well-established companies? Are they startups? Like what kind of mix or is it just yeah. all of the above? It's kind of all the above, but I've done, like I've worked with Thriven. So Thriven Financial. And that's a Fortune 500 company. So I actually came on and I talked about generational issues, but I talked about generational issues from a caretaking perspective. And so how do you create this idea of inclusive community when it comes to all these different family members, you know, having different backgrounds, having different expectations, living under one roof. So mm. that was really fun to do. So, but then I've also done, you know, the university aspect and kind of figure out, okay, how do we actually work with those that are coming up from you know, Generation Z or Generation Alpha and their expectation of education. And then also, you know, racially and with LGBTQIA communities and figuring out, okay, how do we sort of create this idea of inclusion and diversity and not just, you know, not just putting them on the website, but putting them in the boardroom, making yeah. sure that your mission is robust and connected to these, to these people. Yeah. So I guess, I guess another question I would have is, when it comes to maybe less the the diversity side, but may, I don't know, maybe it is still both diversity and inclusion. Do you think that there is ever a, a scenario? I, I, that's a bad way to say that. How common is it that people are um, are acting out biases from standard social relationships? So I guess what I mean by that is like, if I work somewhere and I have a group of coworkers that I've known for 10 years and then there's newer people that I don't know. Right. And I need to hire someone on my team. If I select someone from the group of people I know, certainly there could be bias that maybe I'm even unaware of in that decision, but there's also a level of like, I know these people and I trust mm -hmm. them. And, and there's just natural value in that. And that's a normal human thing. Right. I, so I guess my point is, or the question again is like, how how often is that a factor in these scenarios, maybe where someone's being excluded versus it's this hardline kind of bias towards their lifestyle or race or gender or that sort of thing? Yeah. No, I, I think it's definitely more about that. I think, you know, a lot of it also, too, is part of our upbringing as well. So it's this mm. idea of, 
you know, we we're very gendered when it comes to relationships. And so to me, I can only kind of speak from what, what I've seen. So for instance, you know, when stepping into the majority of, you know, business positions, you have chamber, uh, you have, you know, different business chambers, you have a women's one and you have a men's one. Mm. The problem is when you kind of break things up by gender, a lot of the times the networking happens amongst two different groups. So those groups stay amongst themselves and then they never really infiltrate or influence the different companies. And mm. both companies are worse off for it because you're not getting, you're not getting certain men from the group and you're not getting certain women from the group and gender non-binary. So I would say there, there are certain things that need to shift, but I think intrinsically there are certain things as you were saying that are just in our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. So for instance, like I'm, my comfort zone is I'm a complete extrovert. And so when I'm looking to hire somebody, I actually go to the new and shiny. And so I'm like, all right, how can I meet new people? What's the difference? How do I, I look outside my box and outside my kind of, you know, group of friends where I think someone who's more introverted or more comfortable kind of building relationships feels more comfortable kind of reaching into the, to the group of friends. Mm -hmm. I think both need to happen. I would say one thing that I would encourage people to do is the way to kind of, you know, skew out those biases is make sure the role and make sure the application process is as unbiased as you can get. So when you're looking at it, figure out, do I need an Enneagram three, four, or six in this position? Well, that segregates a lot of the people from, from the application. Mm. What type of Meyer-Briggs do I need? What type of background? What type of educational, you know, system? And, you know, what are they most comfortable with? What's their experience? So when you're able to take your hiring process and have maybe about 10 to 15 different requirements, or at least preferences then it sorts out that ability to be nepotistic or mm. that ability for me to kind of always just go for the new and shiny. And right. maybe I'm giving a fair, a fair trial for every single person that, that wants to be a new hire. Yeah. And I'm going to butcher this story. So <laughs> forgive me everyone, but <laughs> there was some, there was a story about, I think it was this, maybe the New York symphony and the hiring process that they would go through and they would have people sit in a room and listen to them play or whatever. But it it was only <laughs> the judges didn't intentionally do this. But what ended up happening was only people who they found physically appealing also mm. typically got selected. And so then they started having people audition behind a screen. So you can't see them at all. Right. And you just hear it. And yeah, the diversity of people who were selected to be in the symphony was far greater as far as physically how they looked and to the point that you're kind of making with this the the music was better right because they got better musicians because the basis of the hiring or the selection wasn't anything other than what they're there for which is to play the music yeah yeah well i, I even find to me i find it more entertaining to watch shows like the voice than i do american idol because i love the idea of the blind auditions because you're you're surprised by the gifting and I think, you know, if companies are able to kind of hone that in and figure out, okay, how do I concentrate on the gifting, not the outward, not, and even the age, you know, how many people coming up to retirement, they're not looking to slow down. They're looking to kind of transition. So you have someone who might be, you know, 68 years old looking for an intern position. So approaching them from the idea of what experience do they come with and how do I actually hone their gifting? And not just be blinded by their age or be blinded by, by my assumption of their age. 
Yeah, you know that's something, and I even I have I, I, I a question I had thought of before we had started interviewing even that now I'm not I'm uncomfortable with, <laughs> but I'm still going to ask about it. You know, some of the ideas that we have, and this is more specifically maybe tied to like race or racism and the the discrimination against people's sexual orientations and that sort of stuff or gender identities. It, it does feel like those are ideas that are more prevalent in the older generations, right? Like with Gen Z, are there racists in that age group? I mean, if so, it seems like it's pretty small amount, right? So I'll just be candid. My original question was going to be just, do we have to some extent just wait for those ideas to kind of fall off? But then in talking to you about, you know, outside of just the confines of, of this conversation in race and, and, and gender equality, it's also, you know, different generations and how they think. And so I, I the reason I say I'm uncomfortable with that is because it's like, well, <laughs> that's just implying, well, we just need to wait for, a, you know, the top 40 years of age demographic to, to die. And that's yeah. horribly morbid and inappropriate. <laughs> and biased. No, but it's hard. I think we need to... I, my hope is that, you know, not so much that the person dies, but I hope that their no. ideal and their their upbringing dies. Because to me, you know, you look at the idea of feminism. I, like, my mom was a diehard feminist. She still is. And I, I thank her for that because that's, you know, what created my, my vigor for it. But when you look generationally, you look at the different, you know, four folds of feminism. Right now, during, like, kind of like the late millennial and Generation Z, we're seeing this fourth wave of feminism. Now, fourth wave is not just about, you know, getting our votes. It's not about, you know, abortion rights. It's about also including those that identify as transgender. And so that's different. And so even those that kind of pride themselves on justice issues, those that are kind of from baby boomers and even generation uh, Xers need to kind of familiarize themselves and, and find comfortability in the fact of your third wave, your second wave of feminism is old school. We've already gotten to the fourth and we're coming into the fifth. And so that, that's why to me, it's almost like when, when I go to a company and I say to them, okay, are you, are you equitable? And a lot of the times they'll say, oh yeah, we're equitable. Well, where do you have women? Well, we have women in the, uh, in the nursery, you know, taking care of all the workers' children. Where do you have the men? Well, they're in the boardroom at the head of the table. So they see the idea of the presence of both genders as equitable instead of actually looking at the giftings of both genders. So, you know, when you're dealing with baby boomers and this old adage of, you know, women are nurturing and men are leaders, we need to understand that that does damage to both genders because it removes and dehumanizes them to be social stereotypes instead of people. Yeah. I mean, that's been my problem with, I don't know, I started to say discrimination, but it, yeah. with just these biases at large is that, you know, for someone to say men act this way, women act this way, white people act this way, black people act this way. It's just super easy to immediately find an example of an individual who meets that classification that doesn't think the way that's been described to that group of people. So outside of the cruelty of it, which is certainly <laughs> probably the most important reason that it should be done away with, but outside of the cruelty of these biases and discrimination, it's also just a really, really stupid way to judge character because you, it's terrible evidence. <laughs> Someone yeah. is a woman, so they think this way. 
what are you talking about? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. How could yep. there are so many women that don't think alike? Clearly, so then immediately that's not a good criteria to judge character mm-hmm. by. Again, independent of the cruelty of it, just intellectually, it makes yeah. no sense. <laughs> yeah. and, and I think even going back to the idea of you know difference of generations, you know, Generation Z, even I, I think it was about maybe one or two years ago, where Legos and Target. Target decided that they were going to stop genderizing their children's mm. aisle. People were having pickets. Like they, <laughs> they literally had like the picket signs and they were on strike because they were so afraid that a, a boy might want to play with dolls and a girl might want to play with connects. Mm. But to me, we rob people of following their purpose and understanding their calling and their career when we actually segment them into little boxes. Yeah. So it's, it's just, I, I do have hope. But I do believe that as generations progress, that we are going to see more normatives. I mean, even the idea of millennials, millennials having an abundance of stay-at-home fathers and that not being, you know, odd. Where Generation X, the idea of of diversity and kind of, you know, women in the workplace, women were still, they might have been equal in the boardroom, but they weren't equal at home. Right. And so as we're moving forward, we're seeing a little bit more of reality, but also common sense. Yeah. And not this idea of, okay, well, well, let's think diversity, let's think inclusion, but we're getting to the point where actually we're practicing that in all forms of our life. Yeah. So uh, another question I have, I think when it comes to the conversation of equity, at least the most common pushback I hear to that is that it is an attack on meritocracy, right? This is the, the classic argument against affirmative action, right? Is well, if you hire people based on affirmative action, now you're not necessarily hiring the best candidate because you're putting this other criteria in front of that. Um, I guess, how do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? How do you respond to, to, to that being an attack on meritocracy? Yep, I would say I think it's full. <laughs> the reason that I say this is because there was an article about Dr. Jill Biden. Mm. And I don't know if it was the New York Times or Washington Post, but the guy gets on there and he says, there's no reason to call herself doctor. You know, you can go to you can go to a college and be just called a professor. The only doctors that are out there should be called cardiologists. That's it. Mm. Well, his idea and his perception is that you you can teach regardless of gender by just going through your master's program. We don't live in that world. Myself. I had to go. Now, I I love academia. I love to learn. But the way the world is how it is, it's not equitable. I had to go for a doctorate in order to be treated like a man who has a master's. Mm. And so that's just the world that we live in. And so for someone to look at the idea of, okay, well, is there this idea of bias? Is there this this idea of sort of hiring someone just because it sort of fits this per se? Mm -hmm. I don't believe that there is. I think what people are doing by having that requirement of equal opportunity employment is their eyes are finally being opened to different talent, different genders, different races, and different cultures to understand that they are just as gifted educationally and experience-wise. But because of their, our own bubble and our own biases, we just haven't seen it. Mm. And so it really is an expansion of our view. And it's a chance for also our businesses to flourish because we're no longer localized, we're globalized. So yeah. the more people that we have that are diversified, the more our business is going to reach more people. Awesome. Well, I, just to be clear, I completely agree with yeah. your take on that. I just, I, again, that's just such a common rebuttal that I wanted to have 
someone who's much smarter than I am <laughs> explain <laughs> why it doesn't make sense. So thank you. I, I um, hear it. I hear it a lot. You know, it, it's just so, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's all it's also. I mean, like we said earlier, it's it's a complicated subject, and it can be so frustrating sometimes. And and in the end, though, I think that, and I guess I instead of saying what I think, I'll ask you: is 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 empathy really the the thing that that has to be observed? really across either side of the conversation. I I think so definitely. I you know I and as and I know we even talked about this before where it's almost like the, this idea of teachability. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many people in my life that you know 10 years ago they were the first ones to say, well, you know, women have this place and men have this place. But because they've seen what I've had to go through as a woman, mm. they've changed their perspective. Not so much because they've shifted their mindset through, you know, a book or someone that's, you know, lectured and kind of beat it out of them, but they've developed empathy because, and even sympathy, because they've seen what I've gone through and in turn, they become an ambassador for justice. Mm. And so it's been exciting to actually see that, that dynamic, but I do believe it has to do a lot about empathy, but again, it has to do with sort of stepping out of our, out of our comfort to not only stay localized, not just stay with our community, but to kind of place ourselves in uncomfortable situations so that we're we're changed and we're shaped by other views than our than our own and what we've grown up with. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's super powerful. Um, is there anything relating to diversity inclusion in the time that you've been, you know, teaching it and working with it that that you've shifted your thinking on, like something that you maybe thought was true when you started that now you've, you've shifted your thinking on. Yeah. I, you know, it was really funny when I, when I first started in, in diversity and inclusion, my whole mm-hmm. entire idea, I think, you know, it still was based on the other. And I think a lot of it to me was more about, I'm going to save the other, you know, I'm going to go out and, you know, kind of be a part of this movement. But I realized, you know, not only was I actually speaking for the other, but I was speaking for myself and there was so much of my story intertwined that compelled me to move forward because mm. I wasn't just demanding justice for those outside, but I was also demanding justice for myself mm. and saying, look, I deserve better. I deserve a better platform. I deserve the respect. And to realize that fighting for diversity and equity and inclusion shouldn't be a battle, that it should be embraced by people to actually have this, this idea of humanity. So, I would say that was kind of a different thing for me, but I think also too, I think, you know, I know we were talking about before, I think there was a sense of disillusionment Mm. that people that I had thought that were equitable, you know, I think, you know, not to get into politics, but I think after a certain political position, finding out that they did have embedded racism, that they had embedded sexism, you know, and homophobia and being shocked because these were the people that were the first in line, you know, at the soup kitchen. They were the volunteers. They were philanthropic. And so to see people that I thought had so much goodness in them have so much fear and hate, I think was just, it took me back. And I realized that, yes, there is hope in this world, but it might not be within the small group of people that I thought were actually progressing forward. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, I think it speaks to, you know, humans at large have a lot of capacity and someone who volunteers at the soup kitchen can also look down their nose and someone who maybe is open to uh, 
different races or something maybe looks down at homeless people that are in need, right? Yes. Like it, it can cut all these different ways. I don't know. I, I, I really struggle to, to find the words even to have the conversation. It, it's, it's which is terrible as a podcaster. It's, it just feels like there's, everyone is so quick to, as soon as a position is brought up that is mm-hmm. not already in line with what they thought to immediately retreat and shut down. and. Mm-hmm. And so then what we end up with is this both sidesism, which mm-hmm. kind of sounds like what I'm propagating, but it's it that's not what I like. It's not equal, right? It's not all the same. But at the same time, like like I was saying earlier, we can't just lock people in a room and go, you can't think that anymore. Stay in the room until you don't think it, because that doesn't change them either. Yeah, yeah. It, and the problem, I find that a lot of people that are still sticking kind of, you know, with their viewpoints and the idea of bias, they're locking themselves in a room. Yeah. And and so it's almost like as as the world is moving forward, there's people out there that truly believe that moving forward is more fearful than actually staying the same. Which and is wild. It is. Really <laughs> is wild. Yes. Yeah. It, it, it's like they feel like they're disloyal to the past. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's, it's very interesting to see how the idea that, I mean, we should evolve as people, you know, our thoughts, our ideas, but I think as you were, you were pointing out with this idea of, you know, you have, you can look, you can look down on someone that's a homeless person in the street, but yet advocate for racial justice. The idea of diversity and inclusion, this is one thing that I've found. It's not about perfecting. It's mm. not about coming to the point where I'm an expert in the field. You will never be an expert when it comes to diversity and inclusion. Because, I mean, even the idea of LGBTQ, there's there's a new form of two-spirit. There's two S. So again, I've got to sit down. I've got to read. I have to talk. I have to figure out, okay, how do I actually create inclusion for someone who says that they're two-spirited? It's a learning experience. So I would say to those that are listening is when you think about the idea of diversity and inclusion, don't aim for perfection, aim for progress. And if you're in that, if you're in that realm, then you'll converse with openness. I, I obviously no one else will see me, uh, but you and I can see one another. I yeah. smiled when you said that. And, and the reason is just because you know, this is totally unrelated to our conversation. So apologies for the non sequitur, yeah. but I work with a, a life coach for a couple of years now. And that is a phrase, it's progress, not perfection that I have hammered into my own psyche and, and shared with friends and family that are struggling with, you know, issues in personal development stuff, right? Or trying to better themselves in some way. And maybe they hit a stumbling block or maybe they don't make a decision that aligns with their goal. And I'm constantly reinforcing, hey, it's it's progress, not perfection, right? And so it's just so it's just so interesting to see how some of these principles are just universally applicable, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And for everything, whether it's someone that's in a startup business, whether it's someone you know, dealing with mental health or even a new family unit. It's just yeah. the idea of having the bravery to move forward, even if it's messy. Yeah. But it's you're still stepping forward. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Colleen Batchelder, I've got to say, I am uh, absolutely humbled that you would take the time to come on the show. Uh, you're an absolute delight to talk to. Um, people can can find you, and I'll have all links in the, in the show notes, but you've got uh, your website, ColleenBatchelder.org. Twitter, you're on there, you have a Facebook, LinkedIn, Instagram, anywhere else that people should be looking for you or how should how should companies reach out to you if they want to have you yeah, sure. and help them? Um, yeah, I, I actually, 
actually offer, so, so part of like the idea of, of diversity is generations. And I offer a generational course, an introduction to Generation Z on Thinkific. So I will hand you the link and this way people can actually connect with that. Okay, cool. Well, again, I'll have all those links in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Colleen Batchelder, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Uh, thank you so much, Walker. It's been wonderful to be on the show. Sky walks on to future day.
All right, folks. Well, that's all for today's show. Thank you so much to Dr. Batchelder for stopping by. That was a really great conversation. I also want to thank Nisha Zarens for the music in today's show. And last but not least, thank you, listener, for listening. I also invite you to check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which is a video game show where we explore the idea of why gaming matters. My other show is the Crowfall podcast, which shares stories and perspectives from the MMO Crowfall. Both of these are available on all podcast apps. Thanks again for the listen. Have a great week. Stay up. <laughs>